My name is Elizabeth Evans, and I'm a homeschooling mom to four kids, ages two through nine, and we are learning how to make joy normal. My name is Bonnie Landry, and I want to welcome you to season two of our podcast, Make Joy Normal. We want to thank everybody for their support and how much you've shared this podcast with your friends and those who you think it would be helpful for. I am a wife. I'm a mom. I'm a grandma. I've been homeschooling for 30 years. My kids are ages 14 to 33. I only have one at home now. I'm a speaker, a writer, a blogger, and I guess we're podcasters now, Elizabeth. (laughs) And I'm an advocate of joy. So welcome to our podcast. Okay, I just want to say good morning to all our listeners, and I want to introduce John Paul Meenan, who is my guest this morning. Welcome, John Paul. Thank you. John Paul and I have met, and our family have met over the years, because John Paul works as a professor at Our Lady Seat of Wisdom College, which we've mentioned in the past. So just for context, six of our children so far out of seven have gone to the college. John Paul has taught them all, which, uh, you know, is uh, interesting. He doesn't... (laughs) He doesn't say a lot about his students when they no, are your children. No, <laughs> Which is probably wise. But but what I know is that they've really, really deeply appreciated your your class and your teaching, and and that teaching is such a natural uh, natural profession for you to be. In. So you are co-founder of that college, one of the founders of that college, which is uh, which has been such a, a gift to all of us. And also, you are the editor of Catholic Insight. So I was hoping that maybe you would just tell us a little bit about both of those entities, so people can hear it from your perspective. Uh, sure. Yes, I, I see both of them as as a mission to uh, proclaim and give people the truth. I'm a great fan of what I like to call uh, meat and potatoes Catholicism. You don't need fancy esoteric theology or philosophy to get to heaven. Uh, God made it simple for people. That's why we have a catechism. We have a church. We have so the origins of the college and really the magazine too, in a different way, were to give people the basics of of the faith and the greatest things that have been thought or said in our in our civilization. So the college started as a one-year program, giving a very foundational approach to things, and it's grown from there. So now we have upper-year courses. It's a three-year program. We're moving towards a four-year program. So obviously, it is you get more if you go deeper into things, into the faith, into philosophy, into history, literature, and the other disciplines of the liberal arts. And the same with the magazine. I see the magazine is sort of a broader cultural appeal for Catholics, especially in Canada, to sort of apply the principles of the faith to cultural cultural things. Right. Uh, culture, uh, some politics, some church teachings, family life, and music, and so anything that really can be called. So beautiful saint commentaries, I've noticed. Yeah, we try to be, you know, Catholic means universal. So yeah. really the faith should permeate all aspects of our life. And that's part of what I try to do is to give people some means in a, my own small way to permeate their life with, with truly Catholic culture that elevates and perfects, which is part of our theme today. With uh, Yeah, with exactly. So what John Paul and I are going to be talking about is grace. I asked him if he would be willing to to just sort of answer some questions. This is very personal for me because I feel like I use the word grace a lot. Uh, and I don't think I have a really clear meaning on what it is. And I think that we always benefit as parents. We're, you know, begging God's grace all the time just to get through the next you know, five minutes or the next day or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, we beg for grace that our, our children will grow up uh, and maintain their faith. But I think that we always are more uh, successful with something if we understand it better, right? We're more able, we're more, work more fluidly with something if we understand it better. And so I thought, I really feel like I need to understand what grace is better when I'm praying for grace for all the, the people in my family or I'm praying for, I mean, I guess in my world, I'm sort of referencing like, oh, that's a, that's a really clear channel of grace. That's a, a grace from God. That's, I, I need more grace. You know, I use the word and would like to define it more clearly. So, so I, let's define what grace is in, okay. in the context of faith. Yeah. So the principle here, before we get to grace, was for a moment from St. Anselm going back all the way to St. Augustine, we get this Latin phrase, Fides querens intellectum. So faith seeking understanding. So even though at the beginning we said that, you know, faith should be, you know, one level simple, even at the simple level, you're very correct in saying we must, we should understand the terms. So I'm very big on definitions. Uh, so is the church. 
So part of the purpose of the Catechism is to give us either a definition or a description of the basic truths of the faith from God and Scripture all the way to grace and, and faith itself. In, in, in this last little bit of the Prima Secundae of the Summa, St. Thomas provides a, a definition of grace. and he, he often begins with a natural definition. Because ironically, grace builds on nature and the faith builds on reason. So the faith is a rational thing. It just goes beyond reason, just as grace goes beyond nature. So grace in Latin, gratia, is in, a, in, the, in the most broad sense, anything freely given. It simply means a gift. It's a gift. That's the way to, that's the context in which we understand grace is a gift, a gift. When St. Thomas asks in the Primus question 110, he says, uh, whether grace is a, is a gift from God, what is grace in the soul and what, what, what does it mean for to, to have grace? And so grace is a gift given to us by God. And, and if you think about it for a moment, everything really is a gift. There is a novel written by George Bernanos, The Diary of a Country Priest. And it's really a novel about, about grace and, the, and how grace works in the lives of people through the midst of sin, brokenness, suffering. And the last line in the novel, it's mistranslated in English because in the English it says, uh, it says grace is everywhere. But in the original French, it's, it's actually everything is grace. Everything is grace. So at one level, our lives are grace. Our life is a grace. It's a gift. Or anything we have, any gift we have is a grace. And so St. Thomas says, grace is something freely given. But when we're given something, there is the gift given, but there's also the reciprocal thanks that we give back for the gift, which is also a grace, which is why in Romance languages, the word for thank you is, is grace, grazie. Now, we've sort of lost that a bit in English because English is uh, not just a Romance language, it's also a German language, Germanic. So we say, we say from the German, thank you, danke. So when you think about grace being freely given, one level at nature, all of our natural charisms, we're going to call that, our, our, our gifts are simply that, they're gifts. Now, human beings are not just natural beings. They're not just natural. We're, we're also supernatural. And we're supernatural because we're called to a supernatural end. So this is the real distinction between paganism and some sort of revealed religion, like Judaism, Christianity, and even to some extent Islam, the great monotheistic religions, where they believe that there is a some supernatural life. Now, we're quite different how we think about that. So we'll focus on, obviously, Catholicism, which we're, right. what we are. The church has adopted this notion of, of grace from even the natural realm and built upon it. And it's the term given to the how God leads us to our supernatural end. So how God leads us to supernatural end. So we can use grace natural, but also supernatural. Okay. So when you look at grace, so as soon as we get to the supernatural level, then we think of grace in its different manifestations. Now, the tradition of the church, so we as Catholics believe in both scripture, that is the Bible, and tradition, right. capital T tradition. That tradition is all that has been revealed by Christ to the apostles. So, and then that is unpacked and unfolded by the church through the ages. So we can derive a doctrine of grace from the Bible, particularly from St. Paul. But because it's scripture and it's, it's, scripture is very descriptive. It does, it's not highly systematic. So you have to derive the, what grace actually means from St. Paul's writings. I'll just give you the basic distinction in grace the church has, has adopted. And that is what we'd call grace as something in the soul, and then grace as a help from God. Okay. okay. So you can look at this in, in paragraph uh, 2000 of the Catechism. It's an easy number to remember. Think of the Jubilee year. Right. <laughs> paragraph 2000 gives you this basic distinction. So the grace that resides in our soul. So when we are made like God, so when God recreates us in baptism and elevates us to a supernatural life, that quality in our soul, that which makes us like God, we call sanctifying grace or habitual grace. The Latin phrase for it is gratia gratum faciens. 
It's literally grace making graced. So we're put into the good graces of God. Now, St. Thomas says the difference between put it, being put in the good graces of God and being put in the good graces of another human being is that in order to be put into the good graces of God, God doesn't change. We have to change because God is immutable. So when we are put in the good graces of God, we have to literally convert. Right. That is, turn towards God. And because God who he is who he is, by being put in the good graces of God, that changes us very fundamentally. It makes us uh, new creatures. So great St. Thomas describes or defines grace, sanctifying grace, as a quality in the soul that makes us like God. Okay, so... And is that something that we can increase? If we, if we fall out of being in good graces with God, if we fall out of, of sanctifying grace in a sense, can we, can, can sanctifying grace be reduced in our life and increased in our life? I guess that's what yeah, I'm asking. Yes. Okay. So it goes back to that, that mysterious phrase in St. Paul, from glory to glory. And that, so we increase from glory to glory. And there's different ways of understanding that. But basically, grace and charity are linked together inextricably. So if someone's in a state of grace, they're also in a state of charity. And if you're not in a state of charity, you're not in a state of grace. Charity is simply grace manifested in the will. That is, so charity is defined as to will the good of someone, particularly ourselves, but also other people and God, and God primarily. Grace is how that exists in all the powers of the soul. So grace elevates our mind, our will, our passions, even in some ways our physical body. Right. There is a metaphysical change in the person. And you see, so you can grow in that. Right. So growing in grace is becoming more like God. Oh, okay. So it's nothing else but holiness. What, what can we do as human beings to put ourselves more effectively in a position to grow in grace? Well, that, that's the cooperation between grace and free will. So I'll give you the other grace that's discerned in the tradition of the church, also in paragraph 2000. So you can see there in 2000, sanctifying grace is a habitual gift, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul to enable it to live with God. Okay, that's habitual grace. But there's also, now this is not a very good translation, but it's the one that's been adopted, what we call actual graces. Okay. Now in, in Latin, these are actually gratia agens. And gratia agens literally means acting graces. Uh, and those are movements given by God. It says in the Catechism, God's interventions in our life. And so we're moved supernaturally to will or to do good. Growing in grace is a cooperation between God right. moving and then us corresponding with that grace with our free will. So every act that someone in a state of grace does is a supernatural act, like any willed act. I mean, you've got obviously acts like digestion and things like that that aren't human acts. They're just, you know, physiological processes. Right. But any act that we choose or, or should choose or, is a supernatural act to someone in a state of grace. And that's every act is, is a cooperation between God's intervention, that gratia agens, and then the free will. Okay. And so, how do we get gratia agens? Yeah, is the next yeah. question. I talked to students about this, and, and it's funny because in this last bit of the Prima Secunde, so the Prima Secunde, uh, this is St. Thomas's Summa, and it's divided up into basically three parts. Right. And, and so, Prima Pars is about God and man, and then the Prima Secunde is how we move towards God with God's help. And the Secunde Secunde is how we move towards God basically with more of our, our powers. Okay, with, with the moral life. That is the structure of the Summa? Basically, yeah. And then the, ter the th third part is, is about Christ and the sacraments okay. that St. Thomas didn't finish. Okay, can you just say that again, the three parts? Because I think this is... I, I need to wrap my brain around this a little more. <laughs> yeah, so the, the Summa is written according to St. Augustine's uh, what called exitus reditus. Uh, man goes away from God, well, out from God, and then returns back to God. And so this, the Summa is written in a very pilgrimage fashion, like it's like a pilgrimage. Like. And so in the prima pars, the first part, it's about God. It begins with God, 
as one, as Trinity, and then God's creation, angels and men, men, human creatures, men and women. Okay. What's called the second part is divided up in two parts. You've got the prima secunde, the first of the second, right. which is uh, how we move towards God with God's help. Right. And then the, the secunda secunde is more about the moral life itself in the concrete. So the secunda, prima secunde, sort of the moral life in general, right. with God helping, and then secunda secunde, moral life more in specific. And then the, the third part is is about the supernatural helps themselves, Christ and the sacraments. Okay, wow. And at the end, you get back to God. Now, St. Thomas didn't get there because, if you remember the story, on December 6th, 1273, he had that mysterious vision on the Feast of St. Nicholas, and he never wrote anything after that. He said, yeah. everything I've written is straw. And so the Summa ends in at the end of the Treatise on Penance and Confession. A cliffhanger. It is, yes. <laughs> and so his, his, his students finished it for him using his earlier notes. Right. Uh, in the supplement. But anyway, so at my point, back to the top, right? So in the Prima Secunde, the last section... And everybody should sort of read this. It's very mm-hmm. quite not hard to read. The two last questions. So the questions, St. Thomas, are actually little sections of topics. Mm-hmm. And the last two questions are on grace and merit. And so merit is the principle by which we gain some sort of recompense from God. Part of God's grace, it's as a gift from God, that we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That itself is a grace. Because by allowing us to work for grace, that itself allows us to perfect ourselves. See, St. Thomas says early in the Summa, uh, if you want the reference, Prima Pars 103, Article 6, he says, why does God allow us to do anything at all? Right. So I always make a joke in class, I go, who could teach this class better, me or Christ? <laughs> and the students <laughs> laugh and go, they don't, want, they don't want to answer, right? Because they go, well, obviously it's Christ, right? No, why does God let me do anything? Because he could do anything I could do. He could do better. Yeah. He, he allows his creatures to do things so that they reach their perfection. Mm-hmm. The same way, as I say to the young women in class, whatever, and the guys say, same way you will force your children to tie their own shoes. Right. And to make their breakfast and eventually do their laundry and do the chores around the house. Because you could do it probably better than they could. But you're but not you, helping they have, them. No, you're not helping. Yeah. And so God helps us by, by allowing us to merit. Now, St. Thomas says that merit itself is a grace. And so the principle of merit. St. Thomas says, how do we merit? We merit many things in life. So everything in life is not just a gift. It's a gift. So God can give us things gratuitously, like life itself. And he can often give us things without our meriting it or them. And many things happen like that. But many things he wants us to merit so how do we merit? Well, we merit by prayer, by good works, by acts of charity, mm-hmm. by doing the duty of the moment. And so if we do what we're meant to do, and a little bit more, yeah. God will reward that. Yeah. So merit is a recompense for something done. But okay. here's the further rock with that. St. Thomas says, well, do we get more merit because the thing is more difficult? And so the harder things are more meritorious. Right. And so fasting all day and and whatever mortification and going on pilgrimages up the tops of Irish mountains barefoot, <laughs> and bloody feet, and you think, was that meritorious? And this is sort of what Kant thought, that Kant thought that the more difficult thing, the more meritorious. And mm-hmm. Kant was a Protestant, and he had a dis- sort of a not quite Catholic view of merit. But St. Thomas says, no. And he says, well, what is the principle of merit? And the, the answer is quite simple. It's really what St. Therese would say 600 years later, which is the principle of merit is love. It's charity. So the more charity, the greater the charity we do something, the more charity we do something with. I'm not using my prepositions. With which we do something is more, it gains more merit, right? The dangling preposition. I got to watch that. I I I would correct correct that on an essay, but... uh, so we have to say it's, it's, it's love. So how do we merit? Love. Because what does God want from us? He doesn't want our good works, really. Yeah. He could do them better. Yeah. But he wants our, our love. Yeah. yeah. I want to um, share something with you because this was a sure. real um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a scales falling away moment for me. This past Lent, 
I was thinking about this idea. So I, I don't find it difficult to fast, right? And I think fasting is a really, really valuable, mm-hmm. uh, valuable thing. And I, it's not something I find difficult. So I fast fairly regularly. But I was kind of, I reached this point that I, in my brain, I thought, okay, because fasting is easy for me, shouldn't I be doing the harder things, right? And I was praying, I took that to prayer because I, I thought, mm-hmm. okay, it, it seems like I should be doing hard or, or fast harder so that it is hard for me or, or whatever. Because why, if I'm trying to unite my suffering, my mortifications with Christ, isn't the more the better in a sense, right? And the answer that I received in prayer is really, you know, emulating what you're saying was you are actually wasting a gift. You, if fasting is easier for you, fast, fast. It's just as valuable Mm-hmm. as as uh, another gift might be for another person but you're you're wasting it by not actually fasting when you know you can when you know it's not hard for you that it be it'd be like somebody who was a musician who you know played mm-hmm. to bring joy to people uh and and that was a gift that they had they could say well it's it's easy for me though it's not you know i'm not really adding anything to to the world because it's it's not challenging it's not nerve-wracking it's it's just natural right and I, it kind of changed my whole view on it i thought boy I've, i i i think that in a sense i have been wasting that gift because i think okay well i'll have to do something different than fasting because fasting is not hard for me right and it's not really right thinking no it it, it there's there it's a, it's a mystery to this because it goes back to bringing the notion of virtue Mm-hmm. And, and Aristotle says that virtue should be easy. Once you're virtuous of something, it's easy to you. But it doesn't mean that it's not virtuous. But there is a, a subtle thing I'd add to that, that St. Thomas, in, the, in that question where he talks about charity being the principle of merit, he does say it's not the difficulty of the thing, and the Latin word there is magnitudo, which is really the greatness of the work right. that makes it. But he does say that love should prompt us to do great things. Right. So you're right. You're on a very correct ground there to say that if you find this, you know, virtuous, easy, then then yeah, fast. But we should in this life always be pushing ourselves a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean you have to fast more. It's just that maybe we could do it. I have to think about this too. You know, do it with more intentionality. Right. Maybe with more more focus, maybe more... Offer something specific or or uh, for some purpose, yeah. Yeah, or with a bit of prayer and being more... Uh, yeah, there's different ways you could do this. That And everybody's going to have their more decision, decision about this. With what we do, have, mm-hmm. it's good to have a spiritual director and to be able to um, uh, find a path that, uh, you know, where you're on, you can stay in a plateau, but then do a little bit more and then go back down a little bit. Like many, if you, many of the saints would go a little bit back and forth in the spiritual life and reach a certain thing and then go back a little bit, then back up and then back up. So life is filled with hills and valleys. I hope you don't go right back down to, you know, but we're, mm-hmm. we should be pushing ourselves like a musician, right? So if somebody finds a piece of music easy, they should be pushing themselves to another piece of music. And so maybe someone like you who may maybe find something in your life that is difficult that you have to do, that right. you could maybe you hate doing laundry or dishes or I don't know and maybe that could be something and I have my own things that I have to work on that push yourself to do it joyfully yeah joyfully yeah. okay so let's let's bring this I'd like to sort of bring this into some some really concrete examples especially for parents because that would be you know my listeners uh, in terms of how we both access supernatural grace and actual grace. I'm, I'm a little confused about the term habitual grace. Sanctifying grace, habitual grace mean the same thing? Yeah, so habit in Latin is going to be something you hold. Something you hold. So we, okay. we kind of, you hold, yeah. So a habit as a virtue means something you can you hold very strong. Okay. And that's why we get the word habit. So the only reason you use habitual grace, is all these terms have a bit of prob- problem to right. them. That's why I teach students the original Latin terms from precise. the church's language. Yeah, because that gives you a precision. So sanctifying grace, habitual grace, it simply means it stays in your soul unless you do something to remove it. Okay. Or you turn away from God by mortal sin. Right, okay. Whereas actual gratia agens is what is called in Latin uh, fluens and incompleta. It comes and goes. It's a movement. Right. 
God prompts you to do things. And it can manifest itself in very physical ways, right? Like the phone ringing or somebody showing up at the door and God will present this to your life. That is, uh, that is a gratia agens. Okay. Obviously, the grace itself is invisible. Grace can't be felt or seen or heard or, but we can see secondary effects of grace. Right. So for mothers, particularly, you know, praying for their children or whatever, you know, God, this goes back to the principle, right, of, of merit. Like, God wants us to pray for others, partly because prayer is, is, is the, of all of our, our actions, it's the one that brings us closest to God. Mm-hmm. So it's the one to which God has linked the most um, graces. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean it's only prayer, but it, it means that prayer, but also other things that are linked to our, our vocation, you know, duty at the moment, and doing our 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 tasks well right. it goes back to that meat potatoes thing i love this yeah. um sort of idea just going back to the beginning of our conversation this idea of that that grace you know we, we're presented with a, a grace like the phone ringing somebody showing up at the door but then our response is also grace or could be if you think about it like a telephone line like god's offering you a, a grace and you're responding mm-hmm. in grace and i'm assuming that in a sense we're picking up grace along the way right as that conversation or that that uh, transfer of grace to grace that we're increasing our capacity for grace so responding to our children so this is something that um you know we pray for our children i think that it's important for us to understand the the potential for grace when our children do something maybe naughty or irritating or whatever how we respond to that is would would it be correct to say that it's both a channel for grace both ways that we can allow God to move in us and we can also re-gift that to him by in the way that we respond to children or anybody, I mean, any human being, but for mothers in particular, you know, our small children can irritate us a lot. Yes, very much so. Like we, we are, it goes back to that question I mentioned earlier about God using secondary agents. Yeah. Like he's willed that his graces be given by other human beings. He's, so God is uh, uh, uses intermediaries, mm-hmm. which is why we pray to the saints. Mm-hmm. So the saints are the first intermediaries, and the, the greatest saint, obviously, is the Virgin Mary. Yeah. So she is the mediatrix of grace. Uh, like the, the, and, then, and then we go down the scale from there, St. Joseph, our personal saints, yeah. our local saints. What source of grace? There they all are. And then, then, then we also are the source of grace from other human beings. Think of a priest. A priest is a source of Sanctifying grace. Right. He doesn't have to be holy. God can use any means. St. Augustine describes grace like like light shining through a window. It can be obscured by a dirty window, someone who's imperfect or sinful or whatever, but the light will still come through. So the more translucent we can be to grace, the more we will be grace to others. Right. Which is what holiness is. And so goes back to St. John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. Or St. Paul, Christ now lives within me. And the more we get in the way with our sin, our imperfection, our anger, our impatience, and how many times have all of us been sort of quote-unquote scandalized by our parents? Not in major ways, hopefully, but little ways like, you know, losing our temper, and I've scandalized my students. You know, all these things, and I'm not saying big scandals, like we use it in the tabloid press. But as St. Paul says, fun as that would be. We, we, but the two differences are edification, and then we want to build everybody up. Right. Every moment of impatience, whatever happens in life, is a grace. Right. Now, sometimes that means getting a little bit, you know, coercive with your children, or say you have to do this, eat your dinner, whatever. That that's a grace. You don't have to. It is not always lovey dovey, yeah. and charity does not mean emotional love. It means willing the good. Yeah. Yeah, willing the good. And this is where I think there's a real misunderstanding of charity because it's it's yeah. often charity to say no to your children, right? It's not charity to say yes to everything to all of their yeah. demands. You know, or to let them, you know, behavior go unchecked or whatever. That's not charity. You know, so to be kind, I think there's a misinterpretation of that often. Yes. Uh especially sort of in the attachment world that I live in, that to to be kind means you don't say no. I've actually heard parents say that, you know, uh, years ago that, oh, well, I don't say no to my children. And I'm thinking, wow, that's denying them uh, mm-hmm. your wisdom. You're denying them 
the opportunity to grow closer to God, to grow as a person at all. You can't not say no to people. Yes. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So just as, so, you know? yeah, exactly. So just as we have tough love, quote unquote, the way the world puts it, like charity has not always manifest itself as that we perceive it as a good. Yeah. Like God disciplines those whom he loves, yeah. as the letter of the Hebrew says. And just as love can be like that, so is, so is grace. Right. So there's tough graces. Grace doesn't always manifest itself. We say we're not always prompted to go, thank you, God. Like yeah. that, that book written a number of years ago, a, a Severe Mercy, about his wife dying. The, the notion that mercy can be manifest as something very painful and grace. Right. And that, yeah. But we realize afterwards that that actually was a gift from God. And that it, um, and how we respond to it is going to be predicated again in our knowledge of how these things work out in God's providence. Right. I'm sort of picturing when you said, um, you know, I must decrease so he can increase. You know, if you're, if you're having an interaction with your three year old and they're being obstinate or they're being difficult or whatever, if we can, you know, the phrase I've used, but I think this is a better phrase is, is get out of the way. So God, give God a little bit of space to work. We often, our sin, especially as mothers, comes out our mouth. Yeah. <laughs> right. We, we're standing there. We have this difficult person in front of us and we can, if we can just take a split second to, to say something like, I must decrease so that you can increase in me, in my response mm-hmm. to this child. But we are, we're so quick to sort of pounce, you know, on, on our children, on our, you know, people who annoy us, whatever. We don't take that second to just allow God's movement in us. But I, if we can give ourselves little phrases like that, like I must decrease. So in this moment, I must decrease so that God can work in me so that I can respond in a way that would be pleasing to God. Yeah, you hit upon a good point there. There's a whole tradition of what, what churches call ejaculatory prayers. We have at hand like arrows right? that that will prompt the grace of God in our soul. So prayers help me for- decrease. It would be a great prayer, right? Help me so, decrease. Whatever. Yes, help me decrease. So God help me or even... How we begin the office, you know, God come to my assistance. Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. And uh, prayers for purity, prayers for patience, prayers for... Like these little prayers we can have at hand. And they don't have to be explicit. They can be said in the depths of our soul, with our mind. Yeah. Even one word, just Christ's name, is is enough just to get the grace of God. Because we have to add into here, the devil is around too, probably like a roaring lion. And we can think of the devil's anti-graces, you know, his attempts to sort of move us in the opposite direction. Now, obviously, the devil's far weaker than God. God's grace is far more powerful. But like anything else, the quicker we respond, the easier it is. Like once you respond to grace with that gratia agens, the easier it is to respond to other graces. And then it becomes habitual, becomes virtuous, easy. And this is where we're on the road to to sanctity and to holiness. And we have to see all those little annoyances as opportunities to grow, grow in grace, grow in sanctity, grow in holiness. I mean, I think that's why God made small children to be annoying. <laughs> yeah, I well, I yeah. Much easier to train yourself with a small child than it is to train yourself to deal with a difficult adult. Yeah, I mean, the, the adult has other complicating things, like a, a fully developed free will and everything that's going to be mm-hmm. more nuanced and you have less control or authority obviously when your three-year-old or four-year-old whatever is under that's your child you have to co-create that child in one sense with god not just physically but also psychologically intellectually spiritually mm-hmm. and that's a lifelong task do you make the child in your image yeah and and your image is in god's image so the more the, the mother or the father is in god's image the more this will work i think naturally like marriage is the path for most people because it is it is the most natural, efficacious, one level path to holiness. Mm-hmm. Because holiness yeah. is almost thrust upon you. Yeah. With 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 children and family life, if you just get through the day, you're just you're going to become. Yes, you will be chiseled into a saint at the end <laughs> if you just persevere. This question comes up a lot, and it is relevant to what you were just saying. We have all these opportunities to grow in holiness. Many times we waste them we, as we grow towards sanctity, and many times we get derailed uh, in, our, in our daily walk. 
But this is a question that comes to me frequently from parents. What if my children are 10 and 12 and, you know, five and whatever? What if I've really messed up so far and I'm so derailed? What now? What, you know, what can I do? And I think that we can take this to all our human relationships because I don't think our relationships with our children are different than our other human relationships. In a kind of a global way, they're not. We still have to work towards ideal, what God would see as, um, what am I trying to say? What what would be pleasing to God in our, all of our relationships, right? What would be pleasing to God in this relationship? That's obviously more, we're much more tied up in our children and we have much more responsibility with our children to, to do that. So what if we've messed up in one way or another with our children, with our spouse, and we have not used those opportunities to grow and suddenly we're, we're 10 years in, we're 50, 15 years in, what? How do how do we go back? How do we get our life on track? Where does grace Where does grace come in? How do we access grace at that point? You know, this is people live through this very much, and I see yeah. you know even around my limited sphere, and some students where they you know people do live in a state of regret. You know, we all do to some extent, and you can't give it into that. We can't give into that. Like Saint Thomas says, following Saint Paul, there is a sorrow unto death, a, a sorrow for sin that can actually cause more sin. And we, sh- we never give in to that. There's an old Chinese proverb that says the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And the second best time is now. You can't go You can't go 10 years ago. You can't go five minutes ago. You can't go 30 seconds ago. You got it now. You only have, all you have is now. Yeah. And it's funny that the word for now is present. And present can mean present as in present. It's also it's a synonym for gift. Yeah. Like it's what God gives us. All we have is a present. We don't live. And in some ways... This life is a mirror of God's eternal present because the past and the future are really, the past is gone. We can't fix it. The future is unknown. Yeah. So all we can do is skip from present, 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 and then we just kind of do the best we can. Now with that, so in the vision of St. Catherine Labore with a miraculous medal, when she saw Our Lady, all, she saw on the ground all these puddles, multicolored puddles. He said, what are those? And Our Lady said, those are wasted graces that people don't use. And you think about the world and and. Fulton Sheen, Bishop Sheen, used to walk by hospitals and go visit hospitals and say, how much wasted suffering is there in hospitals? Mm-hmm. That if people just could use it. I mean, hospitals are extreme case, but even in all of our lives. So all you can do is start from the present and say, well, if, if we haven't done what we're meant to do, whatever, let's say pe- people have converted in midlife and realized they weren't living in Catholic faith and they realized they're 35, they're 45, they're 50, whatever, and their kids are partly growing up, mostly growing up. Well, then you access what graces are on around and you do the best you can, right? Do you have some resources mm-hmm. on on being more present and being uh, like the duty of the moment? I know Catherine Doherty speaks to that, the duty of the moment, which is a really beautiful idea, but helping us to be more present. Okay, what I whatever I've done in the past, yes, okay, there might be things I have to make reparation for, but ultimately... Moment yes. by moment is how we work out our holiness. And mm-hmm. we spend so little time in that moment, right? We're always thinking about the past and how we messed up or the great things we did in the past or the, you know, our hopes for the future or whatever. And of course, we have to act with prudence. What are some resources available to parents or anybody to increase our ability to live more in this present moment? Well, it goes back to what I said at the beginning of the talk. What comes to mind for people is that we tend to want to sort of panic and flail and do too much. We're all kind of like that. But God, we have a church, and the church has a tradition, and the tradition is teaching. And there is back that notion of meat and potatoes Catholicism. There's no need to do 50,000 novenas or whatever it is, and go back to the basics and order our days hierarchically according to what the church has taught, if insofar as we're able to with our own uh, duties. So if you can, daily Mass, if you can, the Eucharist, that's not it's difficult for some people, but even a spiritual communion, some meditation, the Holy Rosary. And if you can get that in your day, even just that, and a bit of scripture, it goes along with meditation, next to a divina, maybe be good for mums and that, whatever, because then it, you can spend five, ten minutes at it and just read the gospel slowly. or, And that's a great source of grace. A family rosary, right. incredible power. It doesn't seem like it. See, one of the stories I love in the, because it's just chaos, you think, ah, oh, the rosary, my brother, and it's just like, oh. kids are like, I don't want to do this. And 
But what happens is one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the leper Naaman. And leper Naaman goes to Elisha the prophet and says, I'll crew me of my leprosy. And he goes, I'll go wash in the Jordan seven times. Now you've been to the Jordan and the Jordan's like this small little river. You can almost jump across it. And Naaman's like, why would I wash in the Jordan? But his little servant says, do what the prophet tells you to do. And it's so simple. He wants to go do some big giant pilgrimage, a big Euphrates, and do something massive with retinues around him. And But he says, no, God just wants something simple. And the simple things yeah. are what produce the most fruit. So you think, well, what does a 15-minute rosary do for me? It does a lot. And you don't see the fruit yeah. right away. Regular confession, the sacraments, right. uh, examination of conscience, little things. It takes you three minutes into the day and you think, okay, but regular habitual immersion in the faith and you'll see how it yeah. affects. It's, it's like a, it's like a mountain being carved by the wind and the rain and it just like slowly you see, right? Or Michelangelo chipping away drip, drip, drip. at yeah. that marble. I love the story of, of Naaman because he, it's the servant. Yes. Who says it to him? Well, you know, if God had asked you to do some big thing, you know, you would have done it. You would do yeah. it, and so you know, just do this little thing, and it, it kind of it's also it's almost a little bit sassy. Yeah, but it kind of reminds me of like Sam and Frodo. Sam, yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, kind of Very Sam much, the guy yeah. actually, you know, saying okay, yeah, you know, actually, no, one more step, one more step, you know. And the whole life is like that. Yeah, it's all of life is really simpler than we think. We make it more complicated. We make it more mm-hmm. sorrowful. And as Saint Philip Neri used to say. We are often the fashioners of our own crosses. We make the cross that, and God says, that's not really your cross. This is the one I want. And my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And see, the more we see the things that we're meant to do as our true crosses. And if you say, well, all I got to do is really deal with this little child, get dinner ready, uh, do my job, whatever it might be. I'm going to, yeah. you go, you go to heaven. That's how simple it is. God says, when the rich young man comes to him and says, what must I do to gain eternal life? Christ says to him, keep the commandments. When I ask students, what does Christ say to the rich young man? Almost all of them say, oh, sell everything, come follow me. I go, he doesn't say that at first. He only says that to some people. Now, some are called to be, you know, Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II, whatever, and carry great, great burdens with great, great love. But the vast run of humanity is called to not lesser holiness per se, but holiness through a a, a more hidden path, simpler path. Right. And we have to, I guess we just have to be so aware of, of the fact that these children who are irritating me or whatever are, are the path. They are this husband who I'm frustrated with or whatever is the path and kind of get over ourselves in a sense, you know, get over our, constant sort of living in irritation right yeah most people who, who is it that said most people are about as happy abe lincoln i think most people are about as happy as they make up their mind to be <laughs> it's true happiness is truly a state of mind it's, it, it's aristotle says happiness is what you should feel or experience intellectually and also from doing what you're meant to do yeah it's a byproduct of doing what you're meant to do of doing what you're good at and what you're virtuous and what god has asked you to do which is why talking about grace like besides the two graces you mentioned, there's also what we call the grace of state. Right. That God provides the grace to do what you're meant to do, but he won't provide the grace for you to do what you're not meant to do. Right. And so if we stray outside of our vocation, bad things happen, right? Now, it can be very sinful, like someone leaving their family, whatever, and they think they're going to find greener pastures right. elsewhere. Never works. Right. right? People think, oh, I found my soulmate. I'm going to leave. No, it doesn't, doesn't work. Okay, almost never, barring extreme cases of, you know, making a bad choice in the first place, right? So that's another case. But so we have to sometimes retrace our steps sometimes. Generally speaking, life is graces are, and God gives those things, uh, those graces liberally. If we just follow the path he He wills for us, and that means in the concrete daily day decisions that we make. See, the Vatican document on the laity uh, apostolicam axiositatem. It has this wonderful phrase, uh, what it calls, every Catholic should build up a, a, what it calls a plan of life. Right. In Latin, it's a ratio vitae. And one of the messages of Vatican II is that lay life should be a little bit more like religious life. Now, they shouldn't blend the two. Francis de Sales is very clear that a monk is not a married man, marriage is not a monk. You can't live, like, they're very different. But they do, they do blend. Right. Like, 
the Catholic life is we should have a plan of life and not just live a chaotic existence. But as much as we're able to have a little plan where we get up in the morning, do our little prayer, those little decisions we make will will provide the grace. Mm. Yes. And that will, the grace will flow from that. Like name it. Yeah, it truly does. I've experienced that in my own life. I was very chaotic in my early years of mothering. I just, you know, sort of very free spirit. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. And it was, I I was going crazy, right? So I had to develop routine. And I've I've learned over the years that it's routine that allows me the freedom to do a lot of the things that I do and to actually be spontaneous as well. It does allow spontaneous, yeah, very much so. Right. Where if you live in chaos, you have no time for spontaneity. (laughs) You're always always putting out brush fires, right? Yeah. The only way you can be spontaneous on an instrument is if you already know the rules of the instrument. Yeah. To be spot in, to go kayaking or to do cycle, whatever you, your love of life is entails. To be a spontaneous knitter, you have to know how to knit. Yeah. Otherwise, it's chaos. <laughs> so, my brother, who's got four little children, and he's going through parenting right now, he's got from, from two to seven uh, right. years old, and he's very strict about bedtime. He says he sees parents that spend an hour and a half putting their kids to bed. He goes, I don't understand that. He says, right. when you're really young, you, you pick a bedtime and you go, that's bedtime. And the kids love it. They grow to, right. you know, they kind of go, you know, they, sometimes they'll put up a bit of a fuss. But generally speaking, I've been there many times in his house and it, the kids are in bed and they're up there reading in their beds, tucked away within about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Yeah. It's great to see. So even children, to instill that, that's, that's being a source of grace, where we instill those little habits in our children. And they feel comfortable with that. Children want order. They do. And I read over breakfast and lunch. That's right. you know, okay, a big good. part of our homeschooling. Yeah. And... And after lunch, we always, you know, everybody had a little job. So I was working alongside them. You know, you push in the chairs, you wipe the table, you take the bowls to the counter, you know, you know, whatever. All these little, I'd have, you know, 10 little jobs that needed to be done. They all take 30 seconds. But it was one of those things that people say, well, how do you get everything done? And I think, well, this is one way that I just meet out little jobs you know, and I train them and at two or three, they're not very good at it. By the time they're five or six, they're getting pretty good at it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so each person was in charge of an area of the house, you know, little, little things that were big helps to me, you know, you tidy the living room, that's your job. It takes them five minutes, but it's one thing off my list. And I'm also training them up, but little, but you have to be really clear and really mm-hmm. give them a lot of guidance in the beginning. So you have to take the time to do that, but it lays a foundation so that Life is much more, is much easier, both for me and also we're living in order, but they've also developed a discipline. It's just a win, win, win for everybody that this, you know, we live an ordered, disciplined life and they know what to do. You get up from a table and this is what you do, you know, but it starts very young and it takes, it takes, you know, energy to put in when they're really little Mm -hmm. to coordinate that. And I think sometimes that's when really, we're really on overwhelm, you know, we have to like, what can I really add one more thing to this? It's just easier sure. for me to, yes. you know, mm-hmm. goes back to that whole idea. It's easier for me to do it. <laughs> it, it is. I, I, yeah. I have one more thing I just want to ask you about, and sure. then we'll wrap up. Sure. This idea of that you mentioned earlier, right at the beginning, grace builds on nature. Can you just explain what that means? Because I don't have a clear idea what that means. Well, there's basic different ways that could be understood. Okay. So one way is one grace I didn't mention was called charisms. So charisms are what are called gratia gratis data. The grace is freely given. So those are the gifts we're given to exercise our vocation in life. Okay. So St. Paul's list, like, some are teachers, some are apostles, some are evangelists, some are mothers, whatever. And so that's that charism. It's one way we discern our vocation is through right. that charism. So God gives some natural gifts that others don't have. Some have physical strength, some have intellectual strength, some have mothering strength, some have fathering strength, some have um, building. So we, we work together. That's one level where grace builds on nature, right? But then also with uh, supernatural grace, agents, that very simply that God wants us to use our nature to to get to heaven and that and that we have to respond with our free will. And our not and free will manifests itself not just as this vague act of the will, disembodied, but the will is exercised through concrete acts of life. And so grace builds on nature in the sense that we have to first live a very vivid and strong natural life. Right. And then grace builds on that. See, there's always this temptation in the church's history 
to over-supernaturalize the spiritual life, which is which is can be very deleterious. Because what happens, there's an old saying in Latin that says, extrema se tangut, extremes touch each other. And that during the Reformation, they so disengaged the spiritual life from the natural life that the natural life became, became completely separate from it. And so they could commit all sorts of sins and that the spiritual life would still be good. It's basically Manichaeism, dualism. That's really right. the recurring heresy in the church. Dualism, where your spirit has nothing to do with your body. Right. But, and that grace has nothing to do with nature. But actually, they, they coalesce into one entity and has so many applications. Think of the church. The church's supernatural mission depends upon her natural mission. Like, like priests have to have natural virtue before they can have supernatural virtue. The church has to be a naturally robust institution with buildings and hospitals and schools. and It's the number one apostolic institution in the whole world by far, is the Catholic Church in terms of doing just good work at a natural level. And then, but grace builds on that. And so when you draw that down to our own personal lives, we have to develop our natural gifts to exercise grace. You can't just say, oh, I pray, but I'm just going to be lazy and do nothing and not go to school or work. Or (laughs) Like he, the St. Paul says, he who doesn't work, let him not eat. Grace works through nature and then builds on nature. So so really, we become naturally more perfect by being in a state of grace. So grace perfects our natural gifts. I would say that that's why one of the messages of like Opus Dei and others like that is that the more Catholics should be, well, those in a state of grace who plug into grace, should be better at things. Not to be too right. triumphalistic, but to think, well, who should be better? Someone who's in a state of grace and who's exercising whatever gift they're doing for the glory of God. They should, right. that, that should elevate all of our natural things from playing instruments to mothering. Catholics should be, should be lights unto the world, even at the social, political, natural, virtuous community uh, level. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is fantastic. If this, uh, this may spin into more questions because our, our listeners submit questions. So, um, sure. So yeah. if, if it requires mm-hmm. some answers, uh, that would be great. Jo- if, I was going to ask you at Catholic Insight, do you have, like, can people interact with you? If they have questions, can they interact? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, there's a, there's a comment thing on all the articles and, uh, I'm very happy to respond to them. Like, it's a, it's a small apostolate. I will be very, yeah, personal with people. And then somebody sends in something and there's this email thing. I'm happy to, and I can even publish the responses if they're comfortable with that, even anonymously, because I think that people asking questions, other people will have the same question. And I'm not saying I have any of the definitive answers, but even I believe that truth is, is gained through a dialogue. Yeah. Now, obviously, the church gives us general truths, but really, we have to unpack that truth for each of our own vocations, lives, and paths of life. Yeah. And so, there's never any ultimate. It's all, the truth is always being unfolded in each right. of our, our lives. So, yeah, feel free, go ahead, and uh, I even take uh, articles and things. So, if okay. someone has something they want to write, just go ahead and send it in. I'm happy to okay. look at it. And- and get the uh, a look at it as a community. There's an old Saint Thomas says that his word for recreation is utopia. It's like I said it to you before. It means good conversation. <laughs> so it's one of the great joys of it life. Is. It's just pleasant conversation. And we had lots. We've had lots. We have, look forward to. Oh, we do. Too. Yes. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us, John Paul. This has been lovely, and I hope to have you on again because it really helps to kind of shed a light on, on the things that I, I find confusing, and I'm sure lots of parents find confusing. So thank you so much. Thank you, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure and delight. Okay. God bless. Have a great day. Wish you well. Thank you. Thank you.